Welcome to CMMS Radio, a podcast and general resource for all things CMMS, computerized maintenance management software, from selection to implementation to help you make better choices and have a successful CMMS journey. We'll bring in experts along the way to help us learn more about CMMS, facilities operations, and much more. If you need help with the CMMS project, send a message at cmmsradio.com using the What's On Your Mind link. Suggest a topic, share your CMMS story, or ask questions. Thanks for tuning in. Today, we are joined by Kevin Clark. He's the VP of AI and customer success at Falconry. Kevin has an extensive background in leadership, strategy, asset management, IIoT, and more. We're going to talk about Industry 4.0, CMMS, of course, and the recent news about IFS acquiring Falconry and whatever else comes up. Welcome to CMMS Radio, Kevin. Thanks, Greg. Great to be here. Yeah, it was, and and I really appreciate you making the time. You and I had an opportunity to have several discussions at the Reliable Plant Conference in Orlando, and you know that was last month, and it was really great to see everybody getting together. When we met at RP, those conversations kind of went around industry, CMMS, sensors. IoT and AI. So lately I've been wondering about industry 4.0, specifically the barriers to successful deployments of sensor monitoring uh, technology. And there's a high percentage of what we might call failed initiatives. But what I wonder is, in your opinion or just observation, is the tech oversold or are clients overzealous, meaning they're moving forward too soon in their maintenance maturity or is it something else um you know i don't know that i would uh i don't put too many of my customers in the category of overzealous let's put it that way um when i when i meet people they're excited about the technology um sometimes too excited sometimes the anticipation is way too high the expectation the anticipation is way too high um sometimes vendors oversell their products and I think I think that's a little bit of the problem out there too. Is is we've got marketing teams that are that are saying things that are yeah I wouldn't say not true. I would just say a little bit inflated. Um, and you know, so when you put all that together with customers having high expectations, vendors throwing out big uh, ideas and and big return on investment, um, that's prime for for failure. Do do you think when it comes to that, that culture is one of the major kind of things that impacts it, whether it's positive outcome, somewhere in the middle, or they're struggling, how does culture and change management play a role in the success or failure of a CMMS or IoT initiative? And does the success really happen at the adoption stage? Yeah. So I, you know, one of the things that I, I talk about a lot is, is that culture. And one of the challenges is that culture doesn't change fast. It's not an overnight thing, right? They talk about, you need a, you need a top executive that's sponsoring whatever you're doing. That that's absolutely true. You need top sponsorship. The problem is, is a culture um, is much more powerful than a top executive. 
And so they need to work on that inside of their facility. And we see it often where we bring in AI, we bring in really cool technology. The C-level is, is excited about it. They want it. They know that it's the future. Um, but there's apprehension. There's culture that's going to bump right into it. There's, there's fears of loss of job. There's all kinds of things inside of that culture and the um, uh, maybe the, the messages that have been um, put out into the industry that, that AI is out there to take your jobs. Well, uh, you know, I think right now AI has only done, um, has only created jobs um, just because there's so much to learn. There's so much to gain from it that you have to, you have to take it and um, uh, turn it into something that, that um, is valuable. And it's not in the place right now that's taking jobs. Uh, someday down the road, it's, it's going to change our jobs, no doubt about it. Um, but it's going to be different than just flat out everybody loses their jobs. We're going to upskill. And that's something we ought to talk about at some point too, Greg, is, is how do we upskill? What does upskill mean? Um, because we talk about that a lot, but we don't talk about what are the things that we need to do to upskill? Um, what does the future look like? And, you know, it's just, just so many barriers out there that causes us to, um, uh, to be challenged with, with the technology and, um, and the culture that we're trying to deploy it in. Well, let's keep, let's keep that, that going. Um, so yeah. what are, what are those barriers? And then how, how would you encourage someone to kind of set up to be prepared to deal with those barriers? Yeah. Um, so I often push practicality. And so, you know, you go right to the maintenance teams, right to the operations teams, and you talk about the technology and how it relates to their job, or in some cases doesn't relate to their job. But the data that we're utilizing is all about their job. Um, so their daily jobs can change. And you have to work with that team um, to help them understand how it changes in a positive way, uh, especially when you're dealing with data. It might be data they've dealt with um, for a long time, and it may be dormant data that they'd never seen before. Um, and all of a sudden, it's it's feeding them something new. And so when you get something new, that's change inside your organization. And sometimes it lines up with what you always thought, and sometimes it doesn't. So that's that's an immediate barrier is just seeing new things. And it's, um, you know, it's, it's, a, it's interesting too, that when you, when you have AI and AI is looking at data, it's not necessarily truth. It's just, it's just real data. And so that real data may turn into something that, um, that leads you in a certain direction, but it's not necessarily true. So people have to figure out the result of that and turn it into something valuable. I, I, you know, I, it it seems like I talk about turning it into something valuable, but that's exactly what AI is. It only knows what you teach it. And so the, the better we teach it, the, the more attention we pay to it, the, the better the results are going to be. Wow. So when I think about that and a lot of the other conversations I've had, especially in the last year, Mm-hmm. The concept of data, you can get as much data as you can get, whatever that means. The question is, or, or, or like the outcome is, what are you going to do to make that data useful? And 
the data in itself is going to give you all these indicators, but to really figure out the truth, I think what you're saying is mm-hmm. you're going to have to get into it. You're going to have to figure out how to properly say, for example, weight the data as yeah. far as the data's impact to inform you on how you move. Is that kind of what you yeah. mean there? Yeah, I do. Um, you know, the interesting thing about, about this is that um, most and probably even higher number than most is that nobody has um, AI in their job description. Nobody has it a line item in their job description that says, go spend a couple hours analyzing AI data or AI results uh, or the insights that it's, it's uh, finding or the anomalies it's detecting or the patterns it's seeing. Yeah, very few people in an operations position has that in their job description. Um, so nobody has the ability to go do that. Um, we're starting to see a few people that are starting to get that level of um, assignment, but it's just not there. And so the ability to go spend time with data, with AI is just not there yet. And that's definitely a cultural barrier. It's interesting when you talk about that specific aspect, that specific aspect of the data itself and AI or otherwise. I'm thinking of all the different technologies and process changes that we've all seen. You, me, anybody that's listening to this, where the change, the new data, the new uh, impact or barrier shows up and we're all cringing. And when you talk about nobody really has the time to go and work with that AI data. Let's say it's two hours a week or two hours a day, anything Mm -hmm. like this. It's so disruptive to what they're already doing, which is why it's painful. But if you go through that pain and you can institute that slight or maybe big cultural change in the behaviors and you suffer through that pain, when you come out the other side, you should, the idea is that you should have better processes and get Mm -hmm. closer to being on a path of continual process improvement or optimization. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And, and what we focus on is the operational data. Um, yeah, I've said it before, um, having operational data for, um, fed into your AI is good. Having operational data plus predictive data is awesome. Right. And so and we look at it from a time series standpoint. So we look at it um, um, as the day progresses. And so we can identify when particular things are happening. We can identify when certain signals, um, maybe maybe it's a, a, a combination of signals that have a problem or let's say they're not normal. I always like to put it in terms of, of your everyday life. What do you normally do in life? And then what are those extra things outside of normal, the abnormal. Um, Maybe one of your kids gets injured and you have to run them to the emergency room. That's an anomaly. That's something that you wouldn't normally do. Uh, Some parents uh, normally do that, but (laughs) most parents don't normally do that. But, you know, it, that's what AI is really trying to do is taking your, your existing process, your existing predictive data and it's looking at the normal and it establishes a normal. And then anything outside of that are the things that we need to pay attention to. 
And we're just not, um, as humans, we're not geared to do that just yet, right? And we've been used to um, taking data out of SCADA systems, any kind of control systems, any kind of historical databases, and taking that information and looking at it and and assessing it from um, as analytical as we can be um, as as humans, but then it's very limited and it's always built within parameters and AI doesn't work with parameters. AI just learns, Hmm. which is different. Right. And so there's a place for parameters in inside of controls and SCADA systems, but there's a place for learning uh, and learning of the data and understanding what's normal and abnormal. Now, now for me, just to clarify when, when, when I'm thinking about it or kind of my intent here, from a CMMS perspective, so your computerized maintenance management software, system, solution, whatever it might be, oftentimes we've got organizations, let's say they're at a maturity level where they're doing day-to-day work orders, they're doing a little bit on corrective work order tracking, and they're managing their assets. And then within those assets in particular, that's where I tend to focus in on this technology like what Falconry Mm -hmm. does, where... If, if we can gather any additional data that is a, it could be a leading or a trailing indicator of something that's about to happen. It right. can give you uh, condition monitoring data that kind of not shortcuts, but puts you in a better position of, I know these five things right now. So now I can focus on the next two things with incredible focus and figure out, you know, it'll give you all those kind of opportunities to, hey, here's where you should look. You might have a problem coming up. And mm-hmm. so I want to bring this back to Falconry in particular. So, you know, obviously Falconry has some big news in that um, IFS is acquiring Falconry. Right. And IFS, for anyone who doesn't know who they are, um, they have a solution that also includes IFS Ultimo, which is a CMMS platform. I learned something about it. Uh, obviously over the years. And I got to talk to some of those team members when we were at Reliable Plant, but I wanted to get some insights from you. So is that when it comes to the the platform that IFS has, both IFS and IFS Ultimo and Falconry, I'm trying to figure out how you see this playing out for all the different stakeholders at the companies, the organizations, Falconry, IFS, and the customers. What What's that really going to do for those users of the CMMS? Yeah. So, I mean, AI, AI has clearly been identified as, as a key success factor for future for, um, for companies like an IFS that's bringing field service management together with enterprise asset management together with enterprise, um, um, enterprise resource planning, all of that coming together. So, uh, IFS is looking at this as a cross the platform solution. You know, there's easy ones like EAM. That's, that's an easy one, right? So, uh, Falconry's industrial AI, um, that lines up perfectly with an EAS, EAM system. It lines up, uh, perfectly with a field service management. It feels, it lines up perfectly with anything that has, data on the backside, but Falconry is focused in on industrial AI. And we do, we do work with the department of defense too, but we got a heavy focus on industrial, especially in the metals industries. And, you know, 
it's it's a different way of looking at things. I was a practitioner for a lot of years. Um, I let I globally led uh, Maximo for Johnson and Johnson, and you know we we deployed a lot of systems. I've deployed Maximo over two hundred times, um, so I know the system. But the thing we're never really good at. Um, I don't care if it's Maximo, if it's well former N four EAM Hexagon um, SAP. Um, any it doesn't matter which system it is we're never good at connecting our assets to our systems. It's, you know, we've got the technology to do it these days and we're just not good at it. Um, the vendors have been pushing for it, but yet um, I don't think the solutions have been mature enough. And I think you're bringing an Ultimo system, a very mature CMMS together with a very mature AI industrial, industrial AI system. And I, I think that's going to, I think that's going to be interesting in the next six months to see, see what happens there because it's a totally different way of doing predictive than I grew up. Right. In, in part, we we're a lot of predictive we did manually in spreadsheets and, and, um, and identifying what that predictive ought to look like through things like, you know, criticality assessments and Famicas. No different today. We're still doing the same thing, but we got cool technology that allows us to do it. Not just sensors going into an, uh, into a database someplace, but those sensors now can go into something like AI that's learning what those signals are bringing in. And it's understanding it, it's comparing it to other signals. And it's saying, is that normal? Does that normally happen at this stage of my time series? And so, um, so it's different because it's, it's, it's identifying anomalies rather than saying, okay, I'm too warm or I've got too much vibration or I've got um, maybe, um, maybe, uh, well, you can bring some of the other technologies in like, you know, ultrasound or something like that, but you can, but that's predictive data and that's coming together and you're, you're focused in on just that predictive data, but you have no idea what the rest of the operation is doing. Right. And that's where the operational AI comes into play. When you're comparing operational AI to predict or predictive data. Um, and that will give you a completely different focus when you see the anomalies and you see the patterns um, rather than just seeing the signals. And so um, so it, for me, it's pretty exciting to finally get that in in there. It's it's a different context but it's going to tell you so much more because you know you know so much more information i've got uh customers at falconry that's bringing in like five billion signals a day and so they they have a really good understanding of what's going on in their operation uh by bringing in that many signals um and we're going to continue to see more Um, every customer we have they usually start small um, and once they get comfortable with it, then they move into a little bit more, a little bit more nets. It's part of it's part of the process of breaking the culture, and and start going towards data driven um, reliability rather than rather than uh, um, rather than uh, us making just decisions on our own, some gut feel. Right. Um, you know, AI is a little bit of our gut, right? So we teach it what our gut's telling us. So when we see particular things in the AI, we tell it, well, that means this, or that means that. And once we start doing that, it's beginning to learn what would come out of our, our normally gut decision. Right. Um, so anyway, it's, it has a lot to do with the way you treat it, the way you pay attention to it and the way you 
develop it. And so it's just like any other, any other learning um, mechanism. If it's not taught well, it's not going to behave well. Right. So even there, maybe it's a little heady, I don't know, but mm, even there, the AI itself and the teams and the orgs that are leveraging it within these various platforms, CMMS, it could be an EAM. I like right. to focus on CMMS, but the, the, the whole thing in and of itself has its own maturity process and its own, in a sense, cultural change as well. It has to kind of learn and adapt along the way and go, oh, this means that. And so, you know, it's Boolean logic or whatever's in the algorithm has to kind of learn, almost like a child heads into adolescence, heads into, yeah. uh, you know, and I know this isn't really a, a psychology or child development, you know, type topic, but yeah, maybe it is. It We're all is. people. Yeah, it kind of is, right? Because Because people have to change. Um, in order for new technologies to come on board. Right. Um, And I often use the cameras at your house, right? I've got a few outside and, you know, they they detect when people come around, but it was a change of behavior for me. 20 years ago, I never would have expected to have cameras at my house. And I think most people that have them probably never expected that either. But it's but it's something that we've we've grown accustomed to and we changed because of it. Just like smartphones, we've changed because of it. The way we behave is changed. So the same thing in our in our operations, uh, as we bring in new technologies, things change. And you know, that's actually the fun part about it is is things change. But you know, it's it's the old saying is uh, it's fun. I I have no problem with change as long as it's not me, right? <laughs> I love that. Yeah. I I love that because I, I feel that way. I mean, yeah, sure. Yeah. Sure. Um, and you know, I have to, I have to do it all the time. You know, I've got, uh, I've got kids and so, you know, I have to, I have to change sometimes. Um, now I've got grandkids, so I had to change a little bit more. Um, you know, it just, it's, it's part of life. And I think the problem with AI right now, Greg, is that AI is coming on so fast that we have to change so fast. And I think that's that's the biggest barrier out there is that f- super fast change. It's really true. It's really true. If you just take a moment and observe it and forget about who the players are and all these kinds mm-hmm. of things, that is, in fact, the most challenging part because everything's connected to it mm-hmm. and it's moving at this hyper speed. So when I brought up industry 4.0, mm-hmm. the, the, the kind of idea behind it was, all right, we've got industry 4.0, but we're already working on industry 5.0. And I'm looking at it going, you know, how much of this is a misnomer? How much of this is a bunch of hogwash and how much of this yep. is legitimate technological advancement and innovation that can really benefit us. And I think the latter is absolutely true, but to get there, it's hard patience planning and yeah. you know not giving up so i want to go back to the basic approach when it comes to cmms and i wanted to ask you uh, two things so when it comes to advice you would give someone on getting a cmms platform agnostic to products we don't care which one or anything like this yeah. but would you say and this is a two-parter 
So what advice would you have for those that are struggling with getting their teams to adopt their existing CMMS platform? Mm -hmm. Plus part two is anyone that's for the first time seeking out a CMMS, should they essentially avoid the the IOT and the, and the advanced sensor monitoring and all that kind of stuff? Their first, their first go at it. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and and I'd probably answer this differently depending on who it is, right? So if you're if you're um, you know more of a mom and pop shop and you got one or two users on your CMMS, I'm going to give one level of advice. If you're if you're an enterprise that has um, there's a lot of variables, Greg. You know, margins matter in your business. Um, competitiveness matters in your business. Um, where you're at in your reliability journey matters, right? So there's just, there's, there's a lot of things that would come into play, but I think in general, what I would say, and I'll go back to a comment I made before, and I think most people know me for this too, is, is I'll I'll go for a very practical approach. I always do because what it does is, is you work with your teams um, and you take their advice. I mean, it's, it's sometimes it's hard as, as, as leaders to go back and just work with your team the ones that are actually out there turning wrenches and and coding equipment and and um, um, just making um, your operation run all day long, to go back to them and talk about some advanced technologies that they may have no idea about, um, but they may. But their opinions on on how you get there matters. And that's what we've always found in, in every situation, whether I was a Caterpillar, whether I was a Johnson & Johnson, whether I'm deploying out as a vendor into other businesses, um, is that their opinion matters. And you want that opinion before you deploy, not after you deploy. And that practicality in your system where it makes sense to the business, don't build it so that it just replicates the business because the whole intent is to improve the business with the system. So you don't want to replicate your current business because you're trying to go to the next level. But I would use practicality. I would build I would build your opinions of your people right into it. Um, and I would I would take it one more step and I would encourage technology early on. Um, one of the best things we did back in the early 2000s was we went for mobile technology immediately right after we deployed Maximo for the first time in, in one of our uh, larger sites. And we went for that mobile technology. The mobile technology ended up being the real win. The Maximo was okay, right? We deployed that. It was good, but it was the mobile technology that got people excited, that got them away from their benches, um, allowed them to do the new things. So I would not shy away from the today's technology because you know what's embarrassing is the fact that we go into our plants today and the technology that we have at home is better. And that's embarrassing, right? And so our our plants, our offices, um, facilities of all kinds um, are behind the curve on technology. So I certainly wouldn't suggest to anybody to pause on technology. I would suggest catch up and because it, it helps other little things that you don't think about. It helps with recruiting, right? I once, yeah. 
I once interviewed a, um, a NASA uh, manager and we were just having a regular conversation. She was a leader over maintenance, obviously down in uh, Cape Canaveral. And, and she told me one time, she goes, she goes, when we hire, we get the very best. You wouldn't believe how good these kids are when we bring them in out of college. She said, because everybody wants to work for NASA. But then she said, but we lose them. Because once they get here and they see our technology, they're gone. They go someplace else where they've got better technology. And it's not really against NASA in any way, shape, or form. It's it's what we get ourselves locked into from a technological standpoint. Mm-hmm. And um, it's so it's a it's an HR thing too. It's great for recruitment when you when you keep up with the technology. It's great for competing um, with your um, um, with your competition out there in the market. Um, it's great to go and talk to your customers about the technology inside. It's great when your employees talk about the technology that's inside, you know, it's just that all around it's, it's good, but, but from a practical standpoint, you got to build technology that makes sense. Yeah. I think, I think that's incredibly important because it's easy to get off that path Mm -hmm. early and often because, you know, the talking heads or, whoever you're dealing with and, Oh, I've got this initiative. Now I've got to jump in on it. And you start making some phone calls or you go do some internet research and you end up in the, I'm going to say labyrinth of Mm -hmm. choices. Who should you be engaging with? Or you fill something out and now you get 22 phone calls and look, it can happen to all of us. And you got to take a moment to do a real assessment of who you're working with. For example, this is a Mm -hmm. bit of a, little bit soapboxy <laughs> that yeah. when you're working with consultants, for example, I think organizations that are working with consultants should ask hard questions. I think when you're working with a vendor, regardless of who it is that provides your CMMS platform, I'm right. always encouraging people ask the hard questions and they say, well, why, what are you talking about? I say, ask them exactly how they do what they do and ask them things that might make them a little bit uncomfortable because it's not all about them. It's about you as a customer. And if you don't know something, you're not comfortable with something, you don't understand this technology, throw in some of those questions that are really hard because the vendor or the consultant that takes that question and says, yes, here's why that question gets asked a lot. And here's how we approach that. Now you've got someone that's going to offer you some of the transparency and give guidance like what you're giving now. So next thing I wanted to ask you is with CMMS in particular, no specific solutions or anything like that, but in the computerized maintenance management software industry as a whole, what do you think is coming as it relates to innovation? And I'm going to, I'm going to take an obvious one off of the, off of the list. So we know AI and sensor yeah. monitoring is here, but what right. will then happen next? Yeah. Um, real quick, before we go on to that one, I wanted to respond to what you just said, though, um, about find people you can trust. They don't have to be the perfect expert, but find people you can trust. And this is why networking is so important, why learning and getting to know people is so important. Um, because you need people that you can lean on and trust. Because I, I used to show a slide um, often about AI companies. 
-hmm. And it literally shows the brand of hundreds of AI companies. And then I let the audience know that it's only for one country, hundreds of AI companies. So if I'm over on that side, you know, this side, you know, I can, I, I know a lot more because I'm on the competitive side of it. But on that side, if I had to make a decision on what AI company to go with, I mean, it would be next to impossible. Get to know people and people you can trust um, to help you get through those decisions. Um, as far as the innovation for CMMS minus AI, um, you know, I've been an advocate. And one of the fun conversations you and I had was um, I did an article not too long ago, and it was called EAM CMMS, Who Cares, right? Mm-hmm. And, and I'll be very careful because we just got acquired by a company that has EAM. Um, but I, I think it's, I think it's real. I, I, I think most people don't really care whether it's called EAM or whether it's called CMMS. Um, I think, um, I think maybe we as the industry or the vendors or maybe really good marketing teams are keeping the EAM CMMS, uh, terms alive. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and I do believe there are a few CMMSs left out there, but I think they're mostly EAMs. If we go with the traditional definition of what an EAM does beyond a CMMS, most are EAM-ish. Um, I'll get off my soapbox for that because I can go <laughs> way off the rails when we start talking about the difference between EAM and CMMS. But, you know, if we're talking about um, CMMS... EAM minus AI. Um, I see, um, I see CMMS EAM turning into something that's very um, configurable. When I look at when I look at what we had twenty years ago as our maintenance excellence program at Johnson and Johnson, we had a list, and that list was no more than ten features long work orders, job plans, you know, the, the normal things that you would expect out of a CMMS. Mm-hmm. Um, a high percentage of users only need that and they don't need more. Right. And so I see CMMS backing itself out. Some CMMSs, EAMs have built themselves into a technology corner that they have so many features mm-hmm. that they can't back up and fulfill what a large mass of the people or companies need. And that's just those dozen items. I just need that. That's what I need to survive with, especially mm-hmm. your mom and pop shops and, and um, your small to medium sized businesses. A lot of times that's just what they need. Mm-hmm. Um, I also see uh, systems beginning to come together. So, you know, we talk a lot about procurement being involved and inventories and other things being involved in CMS, EAM. I almost see those modules, those components beginning to become more independent, right? So I only need it. And if I need it, I turn it on. If I don't need it, I turn it off. And the cool thing is, is I don't get charged for it if I don't need it. And, you know, we couldn't do that 10 years ago, maybe even, you know, um, yeah, 10 to 20 years ago, we just couldn't do that. Now, there were some technologies that were out there that could do it, but it was pretty hard, pretty kludgy, pretty expensive, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We're getting to the point now where turning things on and turning things off is really simple and easy to monitor and easy to tie right into your billing. So I think you're going to see 
CMMS EAMs that are offered out that I just need, I just get charged for what I need. I don't have to buy the whole great big system and then only use an itty bitty piece of it. Yeah. So I think that's coming. I, I think it's coming pretty fast. And I think there's going to be a shock out there with some of these, um, with some of these startups um, that are going to offer that. And it's going to make it really difficult for some of this uh, tried and true systems that have developed themselves into a corner. Some companies so, have been working on it to get themselves out of that corner, um, mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. stealth wise. Um, but these startups coming up are going to be, they're going to be uh, very interesting to watch. I'm seeing it too. And what I like about your answer to that is that, the innovative aspect of that is more about almost like less is more. Mm-hmm. And yep. we see that there's a lot of other things that are, that are going to happen. And certainly if we bring AI back into that question and the sensor monitoring, I mean, it, it's, it's going to be crazy, but getting back to one thing that you pointed out, when we talk about the number of solutions that are out there and now I'm talking about CMMS in particular, it's 400 plus yeah. You know, some will tell you 300, others will tell you 500. So let's just say 400 plus solutions out there. And I think about this constantly. And my answer to that, if somebody says, hey, Greg, why are there so many damn solutions out there? And I'd say, well, the reason there are and the reason it's necessary is organizations all work differently. We're not all following a mm-hmm. rote process. There's a lot of dynamic things that are happening within the organization. So somebody solved their own problem and built their own CMMS. And then somebody said, Hey, can we use that? And now all of a sudden you go from a CMMS that specializes here to, Oh, we specialize here too. And here too, and here too. And you become everything. And that's why there's so many out there and people are, you know, asking, well, Greg, how do I, how do I tighten that up? Because as a customer, I don't, I don't know what, you know, I don't know what, what the consultants Mm -hmm. know. I say, well, you got to simplify it. You might need to pull in a consultant. And if you can't, you got to find, and this is something you said, you got to find that vendor or consultant that you can trust, you know, vet them, ask them the questions and get a feel for it. Cause they want to focus on your problem and solve your problem. Nobody cares about features. So I agree with you that this is going to yeah. be a nice innovation as people building these systems who I'm talking to some of them, you're probably talking to a lot of them just Mm -hmm. in general conversation. They know that customers want options and not a cookie cutter platform. And they want to be able to use what they need to use. And they want the option to go the other direction when they're ready and when they mature. So um, that's great. So go ahead. Can I comment on that real quick? Yeah. you know, the, the, the thing I think that's, that's starting to come, I mean, we've been working how long we've been working to try and, you know, get reliability, um, to be the thing. And, you know, it is, it, it really is. I mean, we've, we've gone through RCM, TPM, you know, we've, we've worked hard over the years. I had my years as practitioner. I had my years as consultant. I had my years as, as advisor across multiple industries and, and, uh, and disciplines and, we have worked super hard to get reliability to be the thing. Um, I think it's starting, it's starting to make an impact out there. Um, you know, I'll be the first one to tell you that 70 to 80% of everything that we do in maintenance 
everything. I don't care if it's military. I don't care if it's industrial. I don't care if it's utilities, whatever industry it is, 70 to 80% of everything we do in maintenance, we do everywhere. A pump is a pump, a motor is a motor, a, a bearing is a bearing. We've got regulations and other things like that, that, that differentiate us, but that fits into that 20 or 30%. 70 to 80%, we're, we're, we are definitely identical. We do the same things. Now, how we get them done may be different. How, how much of a margin we have in a business and how good of technology that we can buy and things like that. But it all boils down to maintenance is, is the same in 70 to 80% of, of all businesses. It's that 20 or 30% that is different. And I believe that 20 to 30% is getting smaller and smaller, right? Because there's a lot of businesses that claim to be different, but they're not really that different. So they're mm-hmm. more like a, you know, 5% different than let's say the, the masses. And so I, I think that's starting to tighten up. I think technology is a big contributor to that tightening up, right? Um, when it comes to regulations and environments and hazards and other things like that, that's that those things are going to, those things are going to continue to be part of that 20 or 30%, but they'll, they'll all with technology start to tighten up as well. And I, I think within the next 20 or 30 years, you're going to see, you're going to see most maintenance organizations working in very similar ways. And I think that the, the skills have begun to be, be, begin to be more transferable from one industry to the next. Um, so that um, so that it's much easier to move over uh, to another industry, um, and so I I see that happening, and I see that because of the embrace of technology that's starting to tighten up um, the way we see maintenance. Yeah, I like it. I like it. So now I want to move on to some fun questions, so we can close out the show and get you on about your day. Sure. Number one. What is your favorite music? Mm, that's a tough one. You know, I, I grew up on the farm. And so, you know, we always had country music. Um, so, yeah, that's that's clearly the one that I'm most drawn to. But, man, I love blues. I, I don't know about you, but I love the blues. And I, and I don't need people singing. I just need some good sound. And yeah. so the blues does that for me sometimes. But well, that, that's think- probably where I would go. I think in both cases, they're both, they're both phenomenal, you know? Yeah. And, and yeah. I ask people this question just because it's, it's light and it's interesting. And I think everybody loves some kind of music. So I always like asking that one. So country, yeah. but you also love the blues and it doesn't have to be what they're saying. It just has to be what they're playing. Yep. All exactly. right. Yep. Next one, favorite sport or hobby. And it doesn't matter if you play it, but if it's a hobby, you should probably be doing it. Hmm. So, um, sport and hobby is different. Um, so sport is definitely football. You know, I grew up, well, I grew up as an adult too. Um, so there were lots of growing, lots of growing up while I was an adult, but, Mm -hmm. uh, when I had kids, I coached soccer, but I grew up in football and American football. Yeah. And I could never get soccer. I'd go through classes. I'd go through all kinds of, I love soccer. I like watching it. Um, I've been to some, uh, uh, 
big time soccer games, even over in Europe. And it's, I just, I, that offsides and, and everything, it just, it'll blow your mind. It messes with you, especially when you're a traditional football player. Right. And, you know, there is, there's a very definitive offside, you know, when you're offsides in soccer, you don't know. Anyway, we had fun, uh, raising my kids and, and, uh, soccer, but football is, is, is and I've, I had to be specific. It's, it's college football. So, all right. um, I'll push it a little bit. We tailgate Purdue every weekend, whether we win or not, we, we tailgate. Um, yeah. we have a good time with that. Um, as far as hobby. So I'm an outside guy. So I'm always outside doing something when, when AI isn't making me stay at my desk. Um, so I, I like to get out and I cut wood. Um, I have about six acres that I mow uh, to get around about 150 trees um, on, on that acreage. Um, but I just spend a lot of time working in the woods out on the river. Um, I love to get out on kayaks and, and things like that. So, yeah, that would be my hobby. It would just right. be outside, not inside. Gotcha. Gotcha. And now the last one of the fun questions if they're fun, how do you maintain a work life balance? I, you know, um, I raised kids that are a little bit like me, they're workaholics. Um, and what I've coached them on is, is that, um, um, I don't consider work and life separate. I, I consider them the same. So to try and say balance when I consider work part of life, I, I think that's a hard, that's a hard sell All right. uh, for me. Um, but what I do, so I'm an outside guy. So we spend a lot of time outside. My kids are outside people. Um, and so it's a hard thing for me to, to be able to say work-life balance, even though I work, do work hard at it. And my wife gives me the look. And so that's my balance is, when I get the look, then I'm out. Um, yeah, I'm done. No such thing as done, but I'll be done for the day. Um, but yeah, I, I, that's what I really like to preach Greg is, is that work is part of life. And I also tell people that like to say your work doesn't define you. Well, I, I would argue that it does because it, it shows your ethics. It shows your, your morals. It shows your, your ability to get things done and perform. And so I, I think in a, in a way, work does define you just like regular life defines you. Yeah. And, and remember when, when we were talking earlier, I said, there are no wrong answers. That's right. And it's, it's, this is really to just to get people thinking, cause we're talking about CMMS and, you know, artificial intelligence. We're talking about, you know, falconry getting acquired, which is phenomenal. Congratulations for that. So everything we've talked about today I, th- I think it's really great. And I want to thank you for joining us on CMMS radio. And I hope we can do it again someday in the future. Cause we uncovered so many things that we can continue to talk about and just get people thinking. So, um, really appreciate you being here today, Kevin. Thank you for having me on. My pleasure. Now, everyone, you can find Kevin on LinkedIn. Just search for Kevin D Clark or reach out to Kevin.clark at falconry.com to get a conversation started about your project. Thanks, Greg. You got it. Thank you, Kevin. 
Did you find this episode helpful? Please send us some feedback, suggest a topic, or ask a question. Reach out to CMMS Radio if you need a co-pilot on your CMMS project. Visit cmmsradio.com and use the What's On Your Mind link. Thank you for tuning in to CMMS Radio, your resource for all things CMMS from selection to implementation to help you make better choices, learn from industry experts, and have a successful CMMS journey.